Welcome to Men Hurt Too, a safe space where men get to share their truth. Um, Y'all know I get so excited on Monday mornings because I have an excellent black man who comes on to share his truth from his experiences, from his education, from conversations that he's had with other black men, but it is just simply his truth. So I am so excited today. As usual, I have my special guest, Bill Davis is the president and CEO of Baba's Legacy, a desperatic educator and servant leader, author, educator, trainer, and public speaker with over 40 years of experience in education corporate and community settings. In the education arena, Bill has worked at Rutgers University and NYU among other institutions, and his work has been manifested by assisting school schools build in inclusive environments for students and staff that are committed to equity. So I'm gonna bring him right in, right? I love the bios, but I love to bring my men in and, and we gonna talk about what's important in the bio to him. Good morning, Bill. I have William on your thing, but uh, I see everybody calls you Bill because I watched your book release. <laughs> so oh, good morning. Oh, thank you. Good morning, Trey. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? <laughs> well, now that I'm here with you, I'm doing better. Listen, it's so exciting to be here with you in this time because, you know, we've been going back and forth trying to get you on Men Hurt too. You know, we've been in the DMs, we've been talking, we've been shucking and jiving. But this is a perfect time because yesterday was Father's Day. So happy Father's Day. Thank you very much. So I would think that this time will be perfect for you being a single dad of four children. And we're going to get to that. But I'm I'm so excited because I know God's timing is perfect. You are supposed to be here. This is our Father's Day, right? This is our yes, Father's Day. Yes, it is. Me, we're going to celebrate you for the great dad, the great black dad that you are with four successful children. But let me let me pump my brakes. I can really <laughs> talk let me breathe here so you can breathe. Okay, so please just tell me, um, uh, the first thing I always ask my men is give me a little bit about your blueprint, your background, your relationship with your mother and your father. Okay. Um, so I was born in Newark. And um, my father, my father <clears throat> was, uh, my father was a gambler. And so he hit the street number. And, uh, you know, before New Jersey and any other place had legal lottery numbers, he hit the street number. And that's how we ended up moving from North to Plainfield. So I was raised in Plainfield. And um, it was a very interesting experience to move from North to Plainfield. And, you know, it was the first time living around a lot of white people. And so, um, but we actually lived through white flight because there was a quote unquote, some people call it riot, some of us call it rebellion in Newark and in Plainfield in 1967. And so then Plainfield went from predominantly, predominantly white to predominantly black. And so, you know, our family lived through that. And um, my mother, um, and so just is, is for the benefit of the audience, as well as your benefit when we were talking, you know, before we came on, um, my mother was born in South Jersey, a town called Williamstown. And um, not too far from Glassboro, a little further south from Camden. And my mother was the seventh out of 14 children. Oh. And so, you know, my grandmother, who I did have the opportunity to know, my grandfather died when my mother was very young. But, um, but they were basically farmers in South Jersey. And um, so my mother left Williamstown, moved to Newark when she met my father. And my mother was working as a waitress at a restaurant in Newark when, my, when her and my father met. But my mother left from Williamstown. I've asked my aunts and different people in the family. Nobody really knows the details of my mom's journey. They believe she went on a bus from South Jersey to Newark 
Nobody knows who she stays with. I mean, so that element of how the evolution happened and, and it wasn't until my mom passed away. And so I didn't really get a chance to, these questions didn't occur to me until I was writing my book. Like how did my mom get from Newark to Plainfield? Who were the people that took care of her when she got there? Um, and, but a, a point of, and so you were reading my bio, one of the things that um, is, uh, I guess, a happy and sad thing. So neither of my parents graduated from high school. My mom dropped out at an early age. My mom was a teenage mom. My father dropped out in 11th grade. My mother did eventually go back and get a GED. But both of my parents emphasized education. And so I have two sisters. I had two brothers. One unfortunately passed away. And um, so all of us graduated high school. All of us attended college. I was fortunate enough to graduate. And so um, so the, the emphasis on education was really high. And um, so, you know, we had, I had very um, strong relationships with both my parents, even though with my father, I would see him in the morning before I went to school, but I didn't see him again until the next morning. But on Sundays, um, for those folks who saw the movie Soul Food, it was, that's what it was like. You know, we'd have a big Sunday dinner. We'd travel different places. My father would like going to New York. So we'd go to New York, we'd go to the movies, we'd go get something to eat. I mean, you know, so he liked to take us on different kind of family trips, but his father, died when he was young so he didn't have a father so he had this vision in his head of how a father was supposed to be and so you know he manifested that in terms of how he dealt with all of us and um so you know it gave me somewhat of a blueprint for how i wanted to be a father and um but you know but my mother was very dark-skinned and so she got teased by white folks and then some negroes say light-skinned black folks and so my mother was a nationalist so at an early age, she had me listening to Malcolm X. And so I was a huge Malcolm X fan from middle school age. And my father really liked King. My father was like the kumbaya kind of guy. Like, listen, can we all just get along, blah, blah, blah. And so I grew up in a household where King and Malcolm were celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> and in Plainfield, there were people who were part of the Muslims, and there were people who were in the Black Panthers. And so I grew up around folks who were really, you know, involved in some you know, community change. And so all of those variables led to me going to Rutgers and studying African-American history and having the privilege of teaching African-American history at, at one point in my career. So um, so it's been an interesting journey that I am profoundly appreciative of. And uh, in fact, I was in Newark Saturday for the, for the demonstration. Um, in fact, there are people going to Trenton now. There's a bus leaving Newark, I think around 10 or 10.30. Um, so I don't know if you're sure if you're familiar with Ryan Haygood and Institute of Social Justice. These folks are doing some phenomenal work. Um, some of the black state legislators have introduced a bill for reparations and have introduced bills on police reform. So since George Floyd was tragically murdered last year, New Jersey has not passed any bills to reform police behavior. And so there is there was one bill that was passed, and I think Murphy signed it, that all police departments would have to have body cams. And so, but ending chokeholds, one of the demands is that we have um, a civilian complaint review board that has subpoena power. And then there's a bill for reparations. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but one of the things that your audience should know is that New Jersey had slavery for 200 years. And Perth Amboy and Camden were the two main slave ports. Livingston, New Jersey is named after one of the slave owners that came here as is Carteret. And so um, 
the New Jersey was the last northern state to end slavery. New Jersey, the only northern state not to vote for Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and 1864. And so when you look at the fact where my mom was raised, when you go to the southern part of New Jersey, it's very rural. It looks like what the southern plantations look like. And mm -hmm. even, even when the migrant workers come through there now, you know, it's, it's kind of horrible the way that they're the circumstances that they have to live in in order to crop. And that's why it's called the Garden State, because of the fact that there are many parts of southern New Jersey where there's, you know, farms and people have to pick the pick the products. And so um yeah, so I was in Newark Saturday. I mean there were several Juneteenth events on Saturday. And so it was magnificent to um to you know to be out and the weather was really warm, but it was it was great, great way to start the Father's Day weekend. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, I want everybody listening right now because you dropped some gems just now on, on what New Jersey is about and some laws that need to be passed. Because we're not really here to just sit and play or just have a, you know, we, we're going to have a good time and a good conversation. But I appreciate you giving us the history. I just appreciate our intellectual Black men. Who, who know history because media shines a light like black men don't know nothing like black men are not educated or black men mm -hmm. no no black men know stuff like thank you so much for, for what you just said and I love it that your mother and father were Malcolm and Martin because that balance and let's talk about balance in the home that can lead us right to it that balance of Malcolm and Martin you know Malcolm by any means necessary and Martin you know you know can we keep the peace? Right. How important is balance in the home for children when it comes to uh, male and female energy? And how did you, okay, first, you're a single dad of four kids. I need yes. four children. I need every, I said kids. I'm from the hood. I'm from Essex right. County. Okay. I'm from Rolling Stone. I lived Irvington, East Orange, North, Bloomfield, Glenbrook, all of Essex County. So I'm an Essex okay. County girl. I can't claim one spot, but I'm East Orange is my main hood. Okay. But how did you become a father of uh, a four, a single dad of four children? Okay. So I was I was married for nine years, and um, <clears throat> my former wife suffered from bipolar disorder, and so um, we it was we were dealing with a lot of different kind of issues, trying to figure out uh, a if the marriage was salvageable. So we went through marriage counseling and all those kind of things, and then. Um, it just became very clear that, you know, the stress of the marriage and the stress of parenting was just not something that was really going to work in her, for her, to her benefit. And so, um, so I, I took a job working in New Brunswick and in fact, we were living in Newark at the time, we were living in the Bellsburg section. And, um, so I moved from Newark to Piscataway where I live now and, um, the children were three, five, seven, and nine. When I moved here, that was 1992, and so um, and to my former wife's courage, I mean, and, and compliment, she you know came to the realization that it was better for the children to stay with me, that I was in a better position to provide for them, you know, on emotionally, financially, and all the different things that needed to happen, and so um, so we came, and you know, it was not popular with a lot of people. Um, you know, people were um, not convinced that I would be able to take care of my children. And so, you know, um, and then when we got here, uh, fortunately, I went to Rutgers. I was raised in Plainfield. And so, you know, I knew some people in this area and had to, so that African proverb, it takes a village. I had to build a village. 
in order to um, take care of what my, my father served in World War II. And so my father nicknamed my children, the crew. So whenever we would go and visit him, he would say, how's your crew? So that's how Baba's a Swahili word for father. And mm -hmm. so, which is what my children call me. So my children call me Baba. And then my father gave my children the name, the crew. So that's how the title of the book came about, Baba and the crew. Um, and so, and Trey, to be honest with you, um, I didn't anticipate that I would stay a single father this oh, length wow. of time. Um, I anticipated that, you know, eventually I would meet somebody, and, you know, but my mother told me something before she passed. She said, you're going to meet women that'll be interested in you, but they're not going to be prepared for the fact you have four children. That was absolutely, uh, enormously insightful observation. And so, um, and so then after a period of time, you know, you just get into routine of what you're doing and, you know, the old expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, you know, I would get them up, <clears throat> they'd have breakfast while they're having breakfast, I'm cooking dinner because all of them participated in different kinds of activities, whether it was sports, music or whatever. So there wasn't time to cook after school. So I would take them to school. Um, they'd be in the after school program. Then I'd get off of work, pick them up, come back home. If we had time to eat, we eat, we go to whatever kind of activity they have and then come back, do homework, boom. <clears throat> and uh, my former brother-in-law told me, he was, he was a recovering alcoholic. He said, man, he said, listen, bro, for those of us who are recovering, we just go day to day. He said, because if you think about it too far out, it's going to be debilitating. He said, if you just do one day at a time, then you know. Wow. And um, so that was <laughs> that was an enormously insightful suggestion. And then when you're in the midst of it, you know, you don't really have too much time to project too far out. They're like, I got to do this. I got to wash these clothes. We got to do this homework. I got to go. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I ain't got, oh, I have a whole lot of time to be forecasting too far away. <laughs> I got stuff to do right now. In fact, my father's to come over and, uh, you know, we would try to watch the football game. When football games on, I'm going to do laundry. I'm going, and then I can see she was getting uncomfortable. Like, you know, I just can't sit there for four hours and watch the game. Now, you know, I, I got stuff I got to get. <laughs> oh, man. I love so, it because, uh, I love this because, I'm a single mom and I don't mean I'm a single mom based on my children's father don't um, contribute to their life. I'm a single right. mom because I'm in the house with them by myself and I get right. it. I, need to right. I have a son, my, my youngest is on the spectrum. I have right. to have him shower. I don't have time to think about tomorrow. I, I got to be in the moment today because this is right. poured something out in the kitchen. My 21 year old, he, he don't know what he want to do. Right. He, I'm like, yo, come on upstairs, let's have a conversation. I got more, it's more laundry. I mean, I just washed clothes. So with four kids, <laughs> I can't even imagine because I have three sons myself. I have a 26-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a 12-year-old. Mm -hmm. So the dating thing, I love having this conversation with you from the male perspective because I, you know, one of my questions was going to be, you know, people like, oh, you got three kids. Ain't nobody going to want to date you. I'm like, yeah. well, I know men that got four kids, you know, five kids, three different baby mamas. Right. And y'all talk about me. Right, right. And I wanted to ask you from the male perspective, was it a struggle? But you just answered the question that you go through the same thing we go through. Oh, it, it was a struggle. It was a struggle, no question. Because you don't have, I mean, so the two things that make dating work is you got to have time, you got to have money. And <laughs> so, right, I mean, so, you know, 
You gotta have some time, right? Because you're gonna want to go somewhere, gonna go dinner to movies or hear some music or whatever. And they gotta have some money, right? <laughs> I didn't have neither one of them. And so you know, <laughs> I didn't have no time, I didn't have no money. <clears throat> and then I got four children, right? And so it's like, you know, uh, and then I meet women who, if they didn't have children, like, listen, I'm not trying to have no more children, dear. So if that's that if that's a deal breaker for you, I'm definitely not the guy. And then, you know, and then it was hard for women to believe that I didn't have any baby mama drama. Like, look, me and my former wife are done, you know? And so, you know, but that the trepidation of their potential being some baby mama drama. And I had all four children about my former wife. So it wasn't like there was multiple mamas and all that kind of, no, 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 no. And, and then for a long period of time, I mean, my former wife is from Wisconsin. And so for long periods of time, she was in Wisconsin. There would be sometimes weeks to months to years that my children didn't see them up. And so, which is one of the reasons that I had to be, I was very protective of them because I didn't, I was very selective about who I, if I was dating someone who might get to meet my children. Because the thing I didn't want to happen was for them to get attached and then the relationship not work. And now they're somewhat abandoned again. So I was, you know, very limited in terms of I might, if I did date someone, and at some point I came to the realization that, you know, I can, if I'm going to date, I can just date for myself. I don't have to, I'm not looking for a wife necessarily. If it works out that way, that's cool. But in, in reality, there's two adults dating. And if we reach a point in which we're going to meet children or something more serious develops, that's cool. But in reality, if we could just date among ourselves, then, you know, um, and so it was, you know, um, trying to work around, it. work around all these, you know, like on the obstacle course, like, all right, well, you know, I ain't got no money. I ain't got no whole lot of time. You know, I, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm trying to handle my children. So, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I try to tell women that all the time. And I'm glad that you mentioned that for the men as well. That's a good point. When you date someone and you bring them around your children, we have to understand that when you break up with that person, your child goes through a breakup too. Absolutely. They have, they have no say so to say, right. dad or mom, I really like this person. Like, right. what do you think you're doing? They just right. have to go through the breakup silently in the grieving stage. And this exactly. is all of the baggage that we put on our children that we don't realize. Like you have right. your kids around two, three, four women or two or three, four men. And they're like, well, what happened to Lisa? Like, right. Lisa used right. to make pancakes, you know what I'm saying? Right. So we gotta right. be real careful. And Absolutely. another very relevant point that you made that I want the whole world to hear. This really, you need to put this on a billboard and a video. Mm -hmm. Just because the woman birthed the children doesn't mean she's always the one more equipped to keep the children. Absolutely. But so society Absolutely. has made mothers let me just say this to the mothers who have said, and I commend your ex-wife, I can't do this. This is not a good look. It's going to damage the children. Mm -hmm. So you're more equipped physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and financially. Ladies who are listening, if this is you, and you know that the father is mentally, physically, and emotionally, or just stable to stay mm -hmm. in a home in one place, right. do not feel bad about saying. I think it's best that the children go with you because just because it's the female doesn't mean it's the better situation. It is the more equipped, more mature parent. 
Mm-hmm. That should have the children that can give them stability. And I, I, my situation is I left my ex-husband and I took my children with me. And there were days when I say, what if I had left them with their dad? He's still mm-hmm. in the same place. He still has the same job, same neighborhood. I, 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 more, I really was conscious about keeping my children in the same school and all that. So I did that. But it mm-hmm. also crosses my mind that you really didn't have the right to take the children and decide what you wanted to do with them. So I just, I commend you and I commend your ex-wife for having the, the know with the wherewithal to say, this is best for our children. And in the end, it showed, it showed up that this is the best. And I heard you say something about your mom that, you know, a lot of people thought that maybe this wasn't the good decision. And I heard one of your interviews where you said, it took your mom some time to realize that this was the right decision. Talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. And so, um, because for for various reasons, one, um, people are always sympathetic to the to the person that's hurting. And so, so my family um, was sympathetic to my former wife. My former wife was was a, was a wonderful person, and um, so you know they were sympathetic to her. And then um, my I guess my family was not really um, fully appreciative of the fact that you know. And I didn't really, the book helped me to, to understand and for whoever was listening, your children are your legacy. And so, and I was clear that, you know, with this particular decision for my former wife and I, when we separated for me to raise these children, that, that people were gonna judge me by how these things, how this turned out. And so, and I was very determined that, um, you know, one of the things that is in the book is that I had a child and so there was a point that, that we were discussing earlier that I didn't elaborate on. So my mother was a teenage mom. And so I was a teenage father. In fact, all of my, my two sisters and both my brothers, all of us had children as teenagers. Oh. And um, so the generational curse that you mentioned earlier, I was really clear that as going forward, you know, and I was insistent with this with my children, not to have children as teenagers to wait until you have your education, you have a career that you've had opportunity to travel and do some things in the world because you will be much more prepared to be a parent. So I, I, you know, got married 10 years later. And then when I had my children had already graduated from college, already had a master's degree, had already started working, had a career. And so I was in a much better position to parent. And so, um, so for my mom and my and my siblings, then it was like, you know, um, they're concerned about my ability to be able to just, you know, focus primarily just on raising children. And, um, you know, but I was really, really determined. I've met people and, and I'm sure at some point in, in conversations we had in the past who have been molested and, you know, how damaging that was for them. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, very determined to raise my children in a healthy space, which we could preclude some of these negative circumstances from happening. And so, um, you know, I just pretty much, you know, I was, I was all in, like, you know, like this is, this think, is what it's going to be. Why do you think that um, we think the world thinks that I'm, a, I'm a mother, so it kicks in? automatic mm-hmm. like I do what I gotta do it don't matter like so why do we think that it would be a struggle for a father to kick in like 
it's natural for me to get up, cook breakfast, do this, do that, whatever, because my kids is in the house. Why do we think that it's not natural for the for the biological father to say, no, like they my kids. Why you think that I'm not equipped or why don't you think that my natural instincts are gonna kick in? I, I don't know if it's, um, I think it's a societal question as much as it's natural instinct. And so because of the way the roles for men and women have been defined in the society that so you know, the mother stays home with the children, the father goes out to work, I mean, that's the, you know, the um, nuclear family model, which has never really been applicable to us, right? I mean, so for the time that we were brought here, our ancestors were brought here, we never had the option of the, the nuclear model. We were in slavery. And so everybody worked, right? Long and hard and under the threat of death. And so, but that nuclear model, you know, of having the White House the picket fence and the husband works and the mother stays home, that's been a very toxic kind of thing for everyone in the society, but particularly for us, because we judge ourselves by standards that are unrealistic. And so the, so, you know, so one of the things I used to teach a class on the Black family. And so one of the things that I would make sure that people understood is that you have to make a definition about what your family unit is going to be. And so for us as in, in African ancestry, then it's, it's been that we have multi-generational households sometimes, which is one of the reasons that the COVID circumstance impacted us so much. I mean, one of the underlying conditions that really got talked about was racism, but we are disproportionately poor, so we're the ones that are on the front line. And so when you look at diabetes and cholesterol and heart disease, all that kind of stuff, we are disproportionately impacted by those things. And so it made us more vulnerable to being in spaces in which COVID can impact us. And, and sadly, out of the 600,000, we are overrepresented in there. Um, but, you know, so I, I think that thinking about what our roles are and how we should conduct ourselves and how do we build, you know, a village and, and a unit that's going to help our family to move forward. And so, um, in different conversations that I've had, I've been um, trying to help people understand because, you know, people are saying now that, you know, there's um, not as much receptivity to people in the community coming together to raise children. And I was like that I'm certain that there are, you know, um, guardrails that people have up, understandably so. And mm -hmm. so, you know, uh, so I had to reach out, I had to do a lot of outreach to try to find people because since my children were involved in a lot of different things, I couldn't take them each one to every location they had to be. So I had to beg other people to try to help us. Right. And people that said yes, and then people that said no. And, uh, you know, so you have to kind of be resilient enough to be able to like, listen, I'm really hoping this person is going to help, but they chose not to. Um, but then you also had to be selected. And so, you know, so I was fortunate that, and I was really um, incredibly, um, I don't even, I don't know, honored, I don't know what the word is, Grace, grateful that there were parents when my daughters had birthday parties that would let their daughters sleep over at my house. Wow. That they that they trusted us enough wow. that their daughters would come and it would be a safe experience for them. Wow. And so um, you know, and the same thing when my daughters went to their house, right? Right. Um, that you know it was going to be a safe visit, that there wasn't going to be any negative drama or trauma connected to it. So right. um, so those are the those are the challenges, those are the guardrails that, that we have to think about, right? And if we don't take enough time and of our circumstance, I mean, so um, I've had, I've worked in places in which people have work schedules that really don't permit for them to go to the parent-teacher conference, that don't permit for them to do the, 
go to the children's activities and all those kind of things. And so, you know, so how do we cultivate that kind of interaction with people who, because of their their circumstance, just do not have the ability to be involved in their children's lives, but we we judge them harshly anyway, even yeah. though they're really struggling trying to figure out a way to financially take provide for their families. So there are a lot of different elements to how we arrive at the different roles and different circumstances that we face and how do we interact with other people to try to help because our children aren't raised in the boat. They're raised, you know, in the school, in the community. And so if we're hopefully active in the school and the community, then we can try to do the best we can to navigate our children through those, through the issues and circumstances they're going to be confronted with. Wow. You said something really powerful right there because you have daughters that, you know, we don't think about these things. You know, I had, you know, I had, I raised my niece and, you know, the girls would come over to hang out and it was never a question of would they be safe with me as a woman? Mm -hmm. You know, women do stuff too. And we need to, you know, recognize that, you know, women Mm -hmm. want kids and things of that nature, but we don't think of that, but we would hesitate to send our children to a house of a single dad with daughters and punish the daughters, so to speak. Like my daughter's not going over there for a slumber party. You must be crazy. But we send our children to another home of a woman and not even question that. And, And we have to shift that mindset and think about people as human beings and their integrity and their morals and their values mm-hmm. rather than if they're male or female. Right. So you have two daughters and two sons. Yes. So how did you, going back to the question from the beginning, how did you get that balance of, because we know children need a mother and a father. We know children need men to teach them some things and women to teach them some things because we hear people say all the time to single mothers. You can't be a father. You can't raise them. You can't be a mother and a father. And you can't. I believe that. So how mm-hmm. do you maintain that balance for your daughters and your sons to see that element of a woman being in their life? Then those emotions. I know, you know, your daughters had, you know, had to go through their cycle. Like, what right. does it look like for a single father? So one of the first lessons that I had to learn was how to ask for help. And so, um, and, you know, society engendered this idea that, you know, we're all supposed to be self-sufficient and all that kind of thing. But at a certain point, we all need help. And so, you know, we have to be, you know, open to reality of, you know, how do I get help? And who who's going to be able to provide me with help? And so, um, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, there were people, fortunately, who did. And, um, you know, so when it was time for, and I, I came to the conclusion that, the message that we give our children as parents, our children expect to hear certain things from us. And so um, it's helpful when they can hear the message from someone else and whatever style or tone that they're gonna bring it in, then our children might be more receptive to embrace it, to reinforce the message that we're already giving them. And and I needed some women around my children who were you know, um, the examples of, how my I'd like my daughters to conduct themselves. And so we were fortunate that, you know, um, there's one family in particular that has been with us on this journey. Like my daughter, my youngest daughter is in kindergarten. She just adopted this family. They've been with us the whole time. <laughs> y'all, y'all ain't got no choice, whether y'all know it or not. <laughs> it's non-negotiable, Jack. I mean, <laughs> like the rug rats. She take her blanket, just walk down the street to their crib. 
and then and the, and the mother uh, you know, had two daughters or has two daughters and uh, worked as a school psychologist. And so uh, was very embracing of, uh, of my daughter, my youngest daughter and of our family. And um, so, you know, um, and then there were other, you know, people who've been on the journey. In fact, there's a family still across the street from us. Um, her, the, the son and my son were in the same grade. My son is six foot six, and that son is six foot five. And so they were on the basketball team together. And so, you know, so at different, each one of them had someone who kind of, you know, a family or, or an adult who they, you know, interacted with and, you know, helped them to get through some of the challenges. Yes. And so I was just, like I said, just profoundly grateful that, listen, you know, um, you know, whatever energy and, and information you can provide that's going to help because their children also benefited, right? So, I mean, so one of them, I don't, I'm guessing that your children may have faced this as well. So my expectation as an educator is that you're going to be on honor roll. And so when our children are in elementary school, they just be blowing it out, you know, just honor roll all the time. Yes. Right? When they get to middle school, they start getting distracted. And so now, you know, we ain't paying as much attention to this as we are to, you know, our friends, right? And so, um, you know, and then the challenge that we face as people of African ancestry is that, oh, if you're smart, you acted white. If you know, you ain't cool to be on the honor roll, that kind of stuff. And so, um, so the children who would be around my children, you know, it was cool to be smart, right? And so the other parents who appreciated that message, right? Like, listen, you know, okay, yeah, but, you know, so they got little prizes, they get money, we go get special meals, all that kind of stuff, you know, when you're on an honor roll. So, because we have to reinforce the behavior that we want to see. Yes. And so, um, so you know, so the other parents recognizing that, you know, okay, well, I see the direction that you're moving in, it's the same direction that I'm that my children are going. So then, you know, became a mutually beneficial circumstance. And so, you know, all of us were like, hey, listen, you know, we want to graduate, we want to go to college, we want to stay away from the knucklehead. So, you know, let's yes. um, you know, collaborate together to build the safe space for that to happen. I love that. That is I love it. Listen, reciprocity. I'm gonna give a little, you're gonna give a little, I'm gonna take a little, you're gonna take a little, but we're gonna keep this balance here. You're going to help my daughters and my son from a maternal mm -hmm. instinct, and I'm going to help your sons. So um, what's in a name? So your children's names. Oh, sure. Um, so my oldest son is named Sekou. Um, there's a very interesting story about how Sekou got his name. And so one of my mentors who unfortunately passed, this one of the smartest brothers I have, one of the smartest people, period, I've ever met. Um, his name was Brother Lombe Bray. Um, and so Long Bay, um, you know, for a period of time, I lived in New York. In fact, that's where I met my former wife. I was living in New York and I was invited and the universe just works in phenomenal ways. I was invited to work with some folks who were planning the first national conference against apartheid. This is in the early 1980s. Oh. And so, you know, we used to have meetings at the UN. And so one of the things that I was aspiring for at that time in my life was to work internationally. And so um, Alombe was one of the premier nationalists, not just in the country, but in the world. Wow. And um, the brother knew African presidents. And so, um, so you know, my, my role in the conference was to reach out to him, and I didn't know him at the time, 
whatever I can tell them, like, you know, we got to get this brother loan, baby, blah, 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 blah. So listen, I, you know, I go talk to the brother, you know, like, I don't, I don't know I who he is. Right, right. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, I don't have any, 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 any quarrel with going to talk to the brother. So I meet the brother, and I don't know if you ever watched the show Like It Is, it used to come on back in the day. Mm-hmm. So Gil Noble, Like It Is, Alombe worked helping to produce the show. Oh. And so many of the guests that were on the show got there because of Alombe. And so, um, so you know, one time Alombe said, come on, man, let's go to the airport to meet the president. And, you know, you hear people say stuff like, you know, right. <laughs> right. All right. So we get to the airport and um, Sekou Toure, who's the president of Guinea, was coming in. And so, you know, there were small group of people there, including Alombe and myself. And so when the president comes off the plane, he comes over and gives Alombe a hug. I was like, my man really know the president. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my man really know this brother. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, okay. And then at the same time, there was a group called um, the word, no, what was the name of the group? I can't remember the name of the group, but they had a song out, um, How You Gonna Make the Black Nation Rise. If you dippy dippy dies and so socialize, how you gonna make the black nation rise? The lead singer in that group was a brother named Sekou. Oh. Sekou, the translation of that name is one who fights for just causes. And if I was named in honor of my father, I have a nickname, Brother Black. Um, but if I was ever to change my name, I would have changed my name to Sekou. Um, and so it was like, that's how he got his name. Oh. My former wife's family was from Haiti. Her father was from Haiti. And um, so when my second son was born, he suggested that we name him in honor of him. His name was Addy. And I said, well, sir, you know, with all due respect, can we name him in honor of Toussaint Louverture, the brother who got Haitians free from the French, right? Wow. That's how Toussaint got his name. Um, My daughter, Imani was, you know, my former wife always wanted to have a daughter. And so <clears throat> when you get the three children, you need some faith, right? Yeah. <laughs> a whole lot of it. <laughs> it needs some faith. And so, uh, and so, you know, and I've been practicing and celebrating Kwanzaa forever. And so it's like, yeah, you know, this is, and I'll, that, that name just really resonates. So it's like, yeah, yeah we, we need an Imani. And my youngest daughter's name is Naima. And um, Naima Safia Ife, which is Naima is benevolence. And so um, Ife is love. And so her, the little translation of her name is the benevolent loved one who is wise. Safia is wise, is wisdom. And so, um, you know, and when they were little, and it's one of the things I talk about in the book, and I, I still ask people this today, you know, that they had to introduce themselves and say their name and what they meant and why they had it. Because, right. you know, you meet people, they have African names. You say, well, what's your name? Yeah, I don't know. Like, right. well, come on now. Come on now. Somebody <laughs> blessed you with this name and you don't know. And, and, you know, whoever gave it to you, either they didn't make sure that you understood it and then you have it and it wasn't important for you to go find out. And so, uh, so I try to get people to really think about it. You know, if you're named and, you know, after a significant person or ideal or whatever, 
then you should be able to um, clarify, you know, what that is. So, um, so that's how they that's how they got their names. I wanted to make sure that they were rooted in some element of African culture, and so having names and the significance of their names, and it also gives them something to aspire for, right? So you know, we want you to embody what the ideals are that attach to your name, and um, fortunately, they've stepped up to to make that happen. Well, they had a great example. So happy Father's Day. I mean, they had a thank great you, example you. and you you put your mind and your will to raising great adults in society, great human beings. And you, I give you a lot of credit for that because we love to talk about deadbeat dads. Mm-hmm. We just love it. Happy Father's Day to the single mother, you know, because you right, had right. No, you, you're, you're a mother, no matter what you get Mother's Day. No mother ever gets Father's Day. So I just right. love to highlight the brothers that are really putting it down because when we see your children, we see where they came from. We see mm-hmm. a product of what you produce. And right. so many times as women, when we raise children in single homes and our children graduate from Howard or they graduate from Penn State or from Rutgers, we're like, that's my son or my daughter. But when they do something wrong and it doesn't work out, we put right. that on the father. Like, yeah, right. you can't say right. this one graduated from Howard, you're so proud. Yeah. And this right. one is in jail. It's the father's fault. You raised both right. of them. So we got to take that thing on. So right. I know you said that your children played, your boys played in Pop Warner. And yep. when they were playing, your daughters were the cheerleaders and you was the commentator. How important was that to make sure that you had that um, that mindset of when my sons are doing it, my daughters are doing it. And is there a difference in raising your boys and your girls? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the i've always wanted to emphasize this moving as a unit and so hmm. you know say uh, that again wait a minute say yeah, that again. Don't right skip. I, I i wanted i wanted to emphasize that we move as a unit and so when um so when my children are involved in something then they had they all also played instruments when they had a school concert we all went when my daughters had cheerleading competition my sons went and so, you know, so I wanted to make sure that they understood that, you know, we're going, we're here to support each other. And so let's make sure that, you know, when we had graduations, we all went. And so it's not like, you know, that, um, well, this one's doing it. And so I don't, no, 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 no. You know, this is a, we, we move as a unit. So, you know, we're all going to go. Um, and so, and I mean, we'd be there. I mean, we were, we were Pop Warner. We were there like all day. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> you know, this was cheering for this team. This was played on that team. So there's multiple ages and multiple, you know, weights and stuff like that. So, you know, and um, so as I'm sitting there <clears throat> and I, you know, I've been sitting there listening. I'm like, and they had never been a black commentator. So I said, well, wait a minute, you know, um, I, I think I can do this. And so when I started commentating the games, it's like, yeah, man, we glad you up there, bro, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, and so I put my own style and flavor to it, you know, and I think that the Piscataway is a very interesting community. It's one of the quote unquote communities that embodies diversity. So there's a fairly significant, at least 30% of the community is African-American, at least 30% is white, at least 30% is Asian. And so, you know, it's a very, the diversity of the town. And so, you know, so Pop One at that point now, it um, is likely to have changed. I haven't been to a Pop One game in a minute because many of the white folks was moving out. And, um, but you know, there's still 
whites that live here. But at that time, you know, there had you know there were a lot of different ethnic groups who were involved in in the game and some Latins. And so, um, so you know, um, so you see African American coaches and all other kind of stuff. So it's like I bet you know I'm comfortable with the fact that we're represented on different levels of this thing. And because one of the things that happens unconsciously when our children see that we're not in positions of influence is that they recognize that, yeah, you know, we're playing, but, you know, um, we're not the ones who are in, in power. So, hmm. um, so, you know, and, and so then. Emphasize, let's emphasize right there too, because you may, you under, let your children understand that you don't have to be the football player, the basketball player. You could be the agent or you right. could be the attorney. Or you mm-hmm. can own the team. So exactly. black people just don't have to be the players. And that's what's instilled right. in our children so much. Like you need to make it to the NFL or the NBA, but we're not talking about the importance of, of how much the agent does or, or this machine works mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the behind the scenes. So that that is a such a great point of look, dad's the commentator. So mm-hmm. if you're not that good at football or you just don't like it, right, you could commentate the game. Absolutely. You know or, or you can be <clears throat> or you could be the water boy there's right. so much more than just being on the team so just to give them that diversity of different areas where they could be in all areas of their life is just I just want other parents to hear that don't mm-hmm. be mad at your kid because he didn't make the football team I talk about that in my book how boys carry that how their father was disappointed because they didn't make the basketball team or they didn't make the football team well you should encourage him to be the owner or to be the, the lawyer or to be the agent or the coach so I really appreciate that. Now, the, the difference, was there a difference in the way you raised your boys versus your girls? Absolutely. <clears throat> and, and one last thing we say about the whole sports thing. I mean, so they could play, but they had to be on the honor roll. And if they weren't, then I wanted to make sure I explained to the coach, coach, they can practice, but they can't play. And because I wanted the coach to re- to emphasize the message to them to respect what the rule is. Like, listen, if you're going to be on the team, you have to be on the honor roll. And so for parents whose children are participating, <clears throat> and I encourage it. I mean, so I was, I ran track in high school. My track coaches were some of our mentors were really instrumental in me staying away from the knuckleheads that were in the community. And so, so I really think that there's a, a real value in addition to the physical fitness aspect of participating in sports. And it's a team effort. And so, you know, you have to carry your role out in order for the team to succeed. So, I mean, there's a lot of different elements that are reinforcing. But then my, my sons gra- graduated from football to basketball. And like I said, all of them played instruments. And so they were in the marching band and the marching band was no joke. I mean, they were more, their practice was more intense than the sports teams were, but they also traveled. They would take them to Florida. They'd go on different trips all over the place. And so, and the children who were doing well academically were in the band. So it's like, okay, so, you know, I I had a couple of different strategies about how to reinforce doing well in school in addition to, you know, um, the honor roll stuff and getting whatever rewards you get for that. Um, But the question of um, the difference between my my sons and daughters. um, And so people ask me all the time, like, listen, my sons were easy, right? Because like, look, this is how we're flowing. And, you know, but your daughters, you know, they the emotional side, you gotta have, I have to buy sh- skirts and dresses and stuff for my sons. So you gotta get more stuff. Gotta deal with the menstrual aspect of it, right? I mean, so there's a lot of different dimensions to it. 
And so, which is why, you know, um, got to get the hair done. <laughs> right. So, so there's, there's a whole other level of parenting, you know, between <laughs> sons and daughters, right? And, um, and you know, and my daughters were more verbal than my sons. And so, you right. know, so my, my patience with, you know, having to hear more chatter, sometimes I didn't necessarily want to have to hear, but, um, you know, uh, like, okay, you know, we got to figure out a way to, you know, the yin and the yang, right? That ebb and flow, you know, how, how do we keep this situation, you know? And, um, but fortunately, since my sons were the oldest and they were expected to be on the honor roll, then, you know, um, and my, my, one of my daughters was probably the smartest one out of all of them. Um, she was just blowing it out. So then in addition to doing, you know, um, school and sports, my daughters also got involved in student government. And so both of them became president of student council in middle school. And then my oldest daughter became president of student council in high school. Mm. And so they took the idea of, so Paul Robeson has, for those people that don't know, Paul Robeson was Rutgers' most phenomenal graduate. The brother was a two-time All-American football player, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, yep. went to law school after he left Rutgers, could speak anywhere between 17 to 25 languages, and was one of the most popular men in the world because he would travel around the world and sing songs in the languages of the countries that he visited. And so, um, so th th that standard was what I was, listen, you can be scholar athletes. So that's what we're aspiring for, aspiring to be scholar athletes. And so then with my daughters, go into, you know, student government and stuff like that. And they're really embodying the whole leadership question. Like, how do we move into leadership <clears throat> and the community service question? And so, um, you know, I was just profoundly, you know, grateful that their own creativity kicked in to say, listen, we're going to add a dimension to what it is that we've already been, you know, tasked with doing. And so, uh, you know, it's been a it's been a phenomenal journey. Trey. I, I got to be honest, it's been a phenomenal journey. I'm just profoundly grateful that um, you know it's a, uh, a you know different people in the community. So one woman said to me, she said, "You were just lucky." Yeah, I agree. I was. I agree because you know we've seen tragedies. Some of their friends died in car crashes and all of the kind of stuff has happened. And so yeah, so some of it was definitely luck. But you know, but underneath of that luck was also a foundation. <laughs> I'm gonna say like I'm gonna say like Nicki Minaj said. I'm gonna say like Nicki Minaj. I'm gonna quote her rap. Uh -huh. No, I'm not lucky. I'm blessed. I understand. I understand. Okay, listen here. Right. Yeah. right. We right. we be talking about luck, but when you put the work in, like I said, this this whole parent. I I said something to a woman. It was a nurse. I was doing my mammogram. And we were just talking, and it was a white nurse. Right. And I told her, parenthood is the worst hood I've ever been to. She fell out. <laughs> she, she fell out. She said, I have never heard nothing like that before in my life. But you're right. Uh -huh. It is the hardest hood. It is. I've been to it some is. hoods. I've lived right. in some hoods my whole life. Parenthood, right, right, parenthood right. will take you out. So right. I don't think you're lucky. I think that you just put the work in. I mean, we right. all have some levels of luck. But right. when you actually say, you know what, I'm going to put the work in. I'm going to... Mm -hmm. I'm going to instill some things in my children. And not only am I going to instill some things in them, I'm going to lead by example. Mm -hmm. I'm going to mm -hmm. go to school. I'm going to right. teach African studies. I'm right. going to come to my communi community and activate, a um, be an activist. I'm right. going to go to the community and I'm going to speak. 
I'm going to show my children something. That's not luck. That's that's mm-hmm. stealing skills and priorities and morals and values in your children. I'm sorry. Like, listen, there's some lucky people that didn't do nothing. Right. They have right. kids that graduated high honors. Right, right. Didn't take drug addicts. <laughs> now that's luck. Like you're right. so lucky. Like yo, you you real messed up. You really lucky. But to put it in, I just want you to just. And I know we don't want to pat ourselves on the back, but. I'm sorry. I, you got to take credit where credit is due and, and God and everything. But no, you're not lucky. You're blessed because you put the work in. And I think that that's what happens to us. When we go the right route, the right things show up. And I tell people all the time, if you don't like where you are, it's based on the choices that you're making. So if you don't mm-hmm. like it, make better choices. And you just really made some good choices for your children, starting with, I'm going to take my babies. Mm-hmm. Because I know people who whose mother, the mother has died or whatever, and the father's like, go with your grandmother, go with your auntie. I'm not I'm not doing this. Like, I've seen this several times, but you made a decision and you should be like, happy Father's Day again. I'm gonna say it over Thank and over you. again. Let's talk about your book. Right, yes. And, and so I do understand one thing because you just touched on a point that was very important. Go ahead. That um, one of my friends, um, I used to tell them all the time, I said, bro, listen, you know, one thing that I'm praying for every day is I stay healthy enough to raise my children because I don't want the children split up. And, you know, at one point that conversation came up with the daughters go with their mom and the son stepped in and said, no, 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 we got to keep everybody together. I don't want, you know, we got somebody over here. So, you know, no, no, no. And the last thing I wanted was that I pass away and they get parceled out someplace and somebody ended up in foster care and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, so I was very profoundly grateful that, um, you know, to stay healthy enough and to be able to provide for them over the course of this time, because of the fact that, you know, um, I, you know, I was, our family stayed together through all the challenges my mother and father had, we stayed together. Mm-hmm. And so and I was, I was determined that, you know, if there was whatever I could do, my children were going to stay together. And, um, and I think... Right. And so I think now that, you know, the value of that is something that they really appreciate. They have they have they have their own sibling chat. And so there's a family chat that I get included <laughs> in. They have a sibling chat that I'm not included in. And um, so, you know, but then no, we talk about you over here. We talk right, about right. you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Papa got on my nerves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> support each other is um is a profound blessing absolutely when we separate children and and people need to hear this you make children feel like oh i'm gonna take the boys and you take the girls you give children abandonment issues to think oh why did you want the boys but you didn't want us and and look how different their life is no i gave my children the same opportunity that's right you know, different things could have happened and you knew the circumstance and the situation. So it's like, um, no, I'm good over here with all four. Don't don't right. worry about me. I'm right, whatever right. I gotta figure it out. How the mother say we got this joke, we say if I gotta get on the pole to feed these kids, <laughs> I'm gonna be on the pole. Like I know I, I ain't got no skills, but right. Um, right. no, we we really have to commend you for saying no, nah, that, that don't sound right to me. So right. I'm not gonna send them over here to make them feel like and 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 for parents who had to do that or make that choice. I encourage you to sit down and talk to your children to say, I gave you to your grandmother because it was the best place for you to be at the time, not because I didn't want you. I hear this right. a lot because I deal with right. 
topics and matters at the heart of men. Because mm-hmm. I do a podcast and I talk to men, men heard too, who say, my mother just gave me to my grandmother. She didn't want me. And right. I know that the story behind it. Right. So we need to take this time while we're alive right. to tell our children. It mm-hmm. wasn't that I didn't want you. Grandma had a home. I was on right. drugs. Your father right. had left. I was 16, 14. Right. I right. just, you know, so let's have these conversations with our children so that they can take that baggage off and be free to live and, and, and run their journey, not crawl, but to run right. their journey. So right. let's talk about your book now. Absolutely. And so this is the book, Bye Bye McCruz, True Story of a Single Black Father's Journey to Redemption. Um, it's available on my website. It's available on, on Amazon. My website is www. Babas, B-A-B-A-S, Legacy, L-E-G-A-C-Y.com. And so um, between Juneteenth and yesterday, it was amazing to see all the different people who wanted to get a copy of the book. I'm absolutely, because last year during the pandemic was when I was writing the book. And um, the intention then was to try to have it done by Father's Day. But because of the pandemic and the formal food that was in the White House and all the crazy stuff that was happening in the world, then there was just a lot of stuff to try to get through to get attention for the book. But now that things are in a better situation, then, you know, um, we've been able to try to get some additional, you know, attention to the book. And so, but in August, we're going to have, um, so August of last year, even in the pandemic, I had a small book which launched, which you saw. Yeah. We'll have a really tremendous anniversary celebration this year. And so, but I wanted to, when I wrote the book, it was to address that narrative about Black fathers in particular in the Black community and family in general, because of the fact that we've always, you know, the the baby's kids kind of stuff, you know. Um, And so how do we recognize the fact that, no, there's there's a lot of brothers out here who are doing, stepping up, whether they're single or with with their mate, um, you know, but the light doesn't really get on them. And so, Trey, I want to commend you on having this platform because of the fact that we don't have enough platforms for to change and challenge the narrative. And since we don't really control very much media, then our images are determined by people who, who don't look like us. Right. And, and there's a vested interest. So there's a vested interest. The money that people think about the incarceration, they just think about the person in jail. They don't think about the bonds and the construction, all the other stuff that went into building the jails right. and all the money that gets made on that end of it aside from, you know, particularly not their private prisons, the money that gets made there. So, um, and so one of the things that I'm desiring to do is to work with organizations, to talk to young brothers about A, being men, and then B, if you happen to be a father, about, you know, stepping up into your father's situation. Because far too often, young brothers, if their father was in present, mirror that behavior that's one of the things that we need to help young brothers decide not to do like listen man as sad as it was for you for your father not to be there then you know that's not what you want to perpetuate with your child and one of the things that i'll say to the women listening is please don't make your child a pawn in the game and so there are women who sometimes will use the child as a pawn in the game if they're upset with the dad you know and i've seen this more than i would like you can't see the child and, you know, you got to give me some money before you can see the child. And, you know, I'm seeing somebody else now, so you can't see the child. I mean, you know, and it's just absolutely crazy. I mean, and so what people should know is that 
fathers being present is a phenomenal asset to the child. There's all kinds of studies that show children do better in school, children, you know, their lives, circumstances are much better when fathers are present. And so whatever issues you have with the father, they don't bring that into the, with the child. I mean, you know, if the father's doing something that's unhealthy, yes. But if the father is trying his best to, you know, and then brothers particularly, I mean, so black men, the, the employment rate is really horrible. And sadly, you know, in my classes, there are two times as many women, twice as many women as there are men. Black women graduate college at twice the rate of black men. And so from a family perspective, African-American women are challenged by the fact if we go by what the Christian term evenly yoked is, they're going to have a difficult time finding an African-American brother who is educated, financially stable as they are. And so African-American college-educated women, married least, have the highest divorce rate because of the fact that they, the, the society wants women to marry above their social class. African-American women have been married below their social class. And so as a consequence, those wedding, I mean, those marriages after a certain time just don't really work out too well. And so, um, but then sadly, college-educated African-American women are having children less than African-American women who are not college-educated. And so the people who are best situated for in our community to be able to raise children are not the ones that are having them. And so we've got some real challenges about our family circumstance that, you know, we need to have some larger conversations and larger, you know, plans of how we're going to do something to address it. And so, um, you know, I just, <clears throat> whatever, whatever way I'm able to contribute, just want to try to contribute something to say, let's you know, ask, let's think about our family and how we can move our families forward so that we have more brothers and sisters graduating and excelling and being able to contribute more to the community so that our upliftment is happening for all of us. I love, love, love it. I love it. So we only have a few more minutes. We actually over our time, but I just need a couple more, a couple more seconds of your time okay. and then we'll get done. So I always like to also share words because I'm a person like I look up words all the time. I don't care if, if I wake up and I hear a word in my head, I got to look it up and all the definitions. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a few words and you just tell me what, what comes to mind when you hear it. Okay. 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 This is my game show portion of the interview. Uh -huh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I've been doing it sometimes, but I love it. Values. Values. Oh, foundation. Mm. I mean, so our 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 the the trajectory of our lives is based on our values. And so I've been a vegetarian or I've been health conscious. Let me just have a healthy lifestyle. I don't smoke at all, anything. I don't I really very limited alcohol and I have a very healthy diet and I exercise fairly regularly. And that's all part of the values. And so I think that our values determine you know, the foundation elements of our life. Mother. Oh, um, you know, I think of my mom, I think of all of the, all the women in the world who have made sacrifices. And I just think of the, the care, I just think of the, you know, my mom used to wear a rock of, rock of fro back in the days. And so I just think of the, oh, don't worry. As I told you, we came on, like, I just love the natural hair now, come on. Look at that smile, that, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, I just have, um, you know, a profound soft spot in my heart for mothers. Education. Um, oh, it's just, I don't even know if I know a word that can grasp it all, but as an educator and as someone who just, you know, tries to learn as much as I can, then, um, you know, I just, 
It's just um, an immense part of my life. It's something that I advocate strenuously and that, you know, it can change the trajectory of our lives. And so, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my parents were from high school, but they emphasized the education to us. And so I think that the better that we, even if we are not educating, I mean, educators ourselves, I mean, the parents are the first, are the child's first educators, right? So the better that we're educated, the better we can educate our children. So, um, so I just think that it's a critical circumstance to be able to learn and to teach. Society. Um, it can be a blessing, but it can also be an immense challenge. And so, you know, um, I think that we have to, that the, the dream of having a society, of a non-racial democratic society, that that dream has not been realized yet. And so the question is, what is our role going to be in helping to accomplish that? And so when I think of John Lewis and, you know, King and Malcolm and Fannie Lou Hamer and all the people who were on the front lines of the civil rights movement, they're the true patriots of the country. They're the ones that's trying to embody the ideals of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness for all people. And so, you know, honoring their legacy and their contribution to society to make society what we want it to be, that our children can grow up. I mean, so I had the privilege of speaking at a Juneteenth event Saturday. And one of the things that I said there is that, you know, we need to think about the fact that as African-American parents, that conversation about how to respond when the police, that in 21, it's still crazy we have to have that conversation. That when the cops stop you, you have to conduct yourself this way, this way, this way, trying to get out safe. And so we'll know that the society has fulfilled its what it the ideals or the creed of society when we no longer have to have that conversation. Wow, a couple more, a couple more. Integrity. Oh, it's it's fundamental. Um, you know, that if you have to honor, honor yourself and honor what you say. And so, you know, and the better that we can honor who we are, the easier it is, you know, the authenticity of, of who we are is going to be communicated. And so, um, you know, um, so that's why when you ask me, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast with you, then, you know, um, I, so you can see by the art, by, you know, my gear that, you know, uh, I, I value understanding our, our, our culture and, and things like that. So I just think the integrity is something that's really, really important. And I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, I had some tremendous teachers and who helped me to aspire to and to accomplish some of the things that I have. Love it. Love. Oh, uh, I think I told you my daughter's one of her middle names is love. Ife is one of the African words for love. And, um, but it's, you know, when we love ourselves, when we love our family, when we love our community, when we love whatever deity, God, Allah, Jehovah, whatever deity, the name of the deity that you pay homage to, when you love the fact that that deity gave you a healthy mind and a healthy body and you love yourself enough to keep it healthy, then I just think that that's the, the fundamental thing that we have to do in the world is to be comfortable and loving ourselves and loving the, the opportunity and the life that the deity gave us and to share whatever gifts and blessings that we have with people who we love. Oh, I love it. And the last one, legacy. Um, all of us are going to have a legacy. And if we're fortunate, if we're conscientious, I should say, we get to shape what that legacy is going to be. And so I think that people should make sure that they are conscientious about what their legacy is going to be. And, you know, that because when we go from the dash of the birth to the dash of the death, what we do in between is going to be the legacy. And so, um, I'm, you know, 
encouraging people to really value their personal legacy and to honor the legacy of some of our great ancestors. And, you know, and so I would, if people think about how smart and articulate King Malcolm and other people were, if they were doing this prosperity ministry, right, as opposed to the ministry of social justice, right, right then our, our lives would have been immensely diminished, right? And so just hearing King and Malcolm and folks like that inspires us to aspire for greater things. And so, um, you know, so that their legacies, hopefully, Nelson Mandela, I mean, you can just go down the line of people, Aretha Franklin, I mean, you know, and, and just say, those legacies have given us nourishment. We need to think about how our legacy is going to nourish someone else. Wow, this conversation has been so rich and so rewarding for me. I don't know about nobody else. <laughs> Tracy, this is my podcast. I hope you got some. I did. <laughs> I'm so serious about that too, because I do this I'm trying to learn what we need to do better as a society for our black men, for our black boys. Because they you guys get disregarded, thrown to the wayside, talked about, diminished. And there's so many wonderful intellectual handy black men and i'm just like why are we seeing all of this and none of this so that our mm -hmm. children can understand that no you come from kings and queens no you mm -hmm. come from kings like black right. men can lead right. black men are leaders black men right. are healthy black right. men are healed black men get help we right. don't see any of this right all we see is on Father's Day, you deadbeat dad, or right. you know, all the time I'm seeing these things, black men are narcissists. Right. No, a lot of black men are not narcissists. They were just raised by their mother who most women give off narcissistic tendencies, mm -hmm. you know, you know, to look at yourself, to make sure you're okay so you can attract right. them. So if a boy is around a woman, he may look like a narcissist. Right, it it right. makes sense if you think about it, but right. I'm so tired of hearing negativity about black men when I know I interviewed, I think you're probably number 48. I interviewed wow. 48 black men who are doing well. And I didn't mm -hmm. pick them because they were doing well. Some of right. them came in, I like to share my story. I didn't know what they were going to say. Right. I said, all black men have a story and they're not going around just traumatizing the world. Right, they right. have trauma too. Men hurt too. Let's hear what they have to say. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate your truth. I appreciate you as a black man. And I appreciate you as a black father because you rock. So I, again, this is our Father's Day edition. This is forever going to go in the cloud and anywhere else I could put it because black fathers are doing it. So just let my people know and your people know and anybody watching this know where they can buy, find you, where they can buy your book, how they can follow, friend, like you, and support you. Absolutely. So once again, Baba and the crew, true story of a single black father's journey to redemption. My website is www.babaslegacy.com. Email is there. Phone number is there. There's different ways that people can reach out to me. And so, you know, if they want to have a book signing, if they want me to speak someplace, if there's some young brothers that they want me to interact with, I'd be more than appreciative of the opportunity to do those things. Trey, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast with you. I really love the hair and the shirt and the message. <clears throat> and I do think that, you know, um, they, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Black men are dope. Yeah, um, I really and so, and, and so And I and as I said earlier, you know, that the opportunity to have a platform in which um, these issues can be discussed and the narrative can be challenged 
and that we can facilitate some type of change, I just think is immensely important. And so immense and profound, the Swahili word for thank you. Thank you very much, Asante San. Oh, thank you so much. For <laughs> and to everybody tuning in, thank you guys for tuning in today. And remember what I tell you at the end of all my broadcast, you deserve the best. Yes, I'm talking to you. You deserve the best. Now go get it. Peace and blessings. And remember Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I love you and I will see you next time. Peace and blessings. Peace and blessings. Stay strong.